You are now entering the mind of one of rock's greatest musicians, a former singer of Styx. The exclusive podcast, Come Sail Away, with Dennis DeYoung. Hey kids, how you doing? Dennis DeYoung is back in town. I'm here, I'm on the radio, or on your, I don't know, your iPad or your phone. Who knows? Maybe I'm in the bathroom next to you. Be careful. Here he comes. Um, last week, for some unknown reason, because every week I kind of struggle to try to figure out what I'm going to shoot my big mouth off every week on, and last week I got into musical genres, and somehow I began to tell you that I, I like all kinds of music, and I can usually find good in everything, in every, in every subgenre you can come up with. I can find something I like. Well, coincidentally, to, to completely contradict myself as I made that statement, I put my finger on one of the genres that just came up, and it was called death metal. And I realized after listening to it, researching it, and spending about an hour and a half listening, that I, I, I didn't like it. I could appreciate it. I could understand it. I could respect the musicianship that goes into doing it and, the, of course, the enthusiasm by the people who perform it. But I thought, you know what? It's, it's just not musical enough for me when it comes to singing particularly. And if you've listened to me over these past 40 podcasts or whatever it's been, you know, I'm a melody guy. I love great songwriting and great singing. That's number one for me. That's what draws me to music probably because um, I was raised listening to big band music that my parents those were the only records they had in the house. And then I played accordion uh, from the age of seven. And um, so that's all based in melody and harmony as well. So these are my. this is how I was raised. This is what appealed to me. So quite frankly, when I listened to the death metal, I said, well, not so much for me. So I managed to contradict myself immediately, which is something I have a habit of doing. Hey, maybe I should be a politician. Anyway, today... Uh, I'm looking for, as I promised, I would look for other, you know, categories of music and kind of just do, you know, do a rap on it. Because I, you know, and listen, you could look this, everything I'm seeing here, you could look up, Google it if you like, or go to the Encyclopedia Britannica, like I said, they're in the garage somewhere under six pounds of dust. Um, and, and, and check the facts. Hey, the facts aren't as important to me. They're just not. We're living in the right culture. I'm at the right time. Fake facts. Let's use those. But what I'm trying to give you is, my opinion, my overall take on the facts as I know them. Okay, so it was death metal last week. So I'm going to the extremes before I get back, you know, to the to the more mainstream kinds of music. So I'm going to punk music. That's right. Now, don't just shut your phone off and say, oh, my God, I hate punk music. Hey, so did I. Listen, when it first came out, good grief. I thought, you know, I, I thought, what is that? That's awful. And to compound it. Sticks had just become successful, really successful in 1977. So we shot over to England to do our first tour. Well, England was the home. It was the birthplace of everything I loved in rock band music, started, of course, by the Beatles and followed by many, many others. So we went over to, to play for the first time, and we were caught in the wave, in the maelstrom, in the storm, that what that was punk music that began in like 76, 77, 78 over there in England and had just captured the zeitgeist. And bands like us, like Sticks, who were playing that mixture of American music with a little prog and a little rock and roll, kind of an amalgam, we went over there. The critics, they just, they just blasted us 
for being dinosaurs. And I thought to myself, dinosaurs? We just made it for God's sakes. And now we're dinosaurs two years later? This is harsh. So the idea that they would be um, hailing the sex pistols of all things and all other things, punk, you name it. Uh, you name the band, whether it's The Clash or whatever. I, You know, I had to hate this music. I had to because it was it was threatening our success and 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 really the that experience brought me back to America and I thought you know what maybe this whole Prague kind of thing we do in our music you know it's run its course which made the change in Cornerstone and Paradise Theater Paradise Theater more evident now you can disagree with my you know whether you thought that was a good thing for the, for the band or for me or for the world I don't mind disagree but this was my take. And I thought, well, maybe the prog thing is over. So punk epitomized to me that all things that I hated, from the lack of musicianship, the lack of singing, the lack of discipline, um, you know, the whole idea that you would um, attack the audience and, 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 and insult the audience. It was just anti-show business to me. And I have a show business side to me, as you will well know. And I like that. You know, I like the showbiz aspect. Let's take a look at Jerry Lee. Take a look at Elvis. A lot of the old, early guys, they had a, they definitely, Little Richard, they had a showbiz side to them, and I liked that. So the thing that I really disliked about punk music the most was its, it felt like anti-music to me. You know, it was too negative to me. I understood the political reasons for the rebellion in uh, in Great Britain, um, but but really, what did that have to do with Americans? It was a whole different culture. But when I really get into the, the punk music and tell you about the bands and, and and my my take on why it happened and what caused it, particularly in England, I want to go back. I got to go back, and I have to go back to 1963. 1963 was really the it was the birthplace of punk music, and where did it happen? In Portland, Oregon. You know, it's cloudy there a lot. So, um, and who am I talking about? I'm talking about a record. The first time I heard it, I hated it, hated it, couldn't understand it. Once again, I came from an era where musicianship counted, right? songwriting counted, singing counted, guy, people who were, you know, they were real singers because that's, that's what people liked in those days. And here come the Kingsmen. That's right, the Kingsmen. And um, the song, Louis Louis. Well, I think as far as I can tell by doing my best due diligence and researching, it's Louis Louis. There it is. Bam, 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 bam. And so I researched it. Um, and let me just say this. I like it more now than I did then. Honest to God, I do. I, you know, it's kitschy. I kind of get it. I get the vibe. Then I was insulted by it as a musician because it sounded well, juvenile and it sounded unprepared. And as I read the story of it, it certainly was. These guys had their band, Young, young Cats, and <clears throat> they were playing at, at, at a club in Portland and their manager brought them into the recording studio to play a song that had become very popular that they did. It's a Richard Berry song. He's kind of a cat. If you go go to YouTube and watch it, you can see. He wrote Louis Louis, all right? and um, But what he did was it was done really uh, more like a, a, a ska reggae feel to it, and he sang it, and they had all these background singers doing all these doo-wop kind of things. It was very different than what the what the Kingsmen did, did to it. So 
they go in because they're they're trying to promote the club and trying to get more gigs. And they they played like like a a, a marathon uh, gig the night before, and they walked in there, and the studio's got three microphones. <laughs> Yeah, and and the whole band kind of sat around him, and as the story goes, the lead singer was standing on his tiptoes because the microphone was way above his head. He was trying to sing above the din of the uh, of the music in the room. So that's how they recorded it, and they bashed it out in one take, and they made mistakes in the thing, and they just let it go because they were paying fifty bucks an hour. Outrageous, right? So this this record that sounded amateurish. It captured, uh, it captured the imagination of teenagers. Uh, a very important thing was there in Portland, the, 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 whole, the whole thing, there was a DJ there that picked it up and started playing it, and it became like a party song, which is exactly what it's all, always been. So Louie Louie really appeals to the, the, the Blue Tarski in all of us. You know that character from Animal House. It has that Animal House vibe where you're drinking and, you're, and you're, you're going crazy. And originally the lyric was so slurred because I understand that that lead singer had braces on, standing on his tiptoes, trying to sing, couldn't be heard. The controversy at the time was the lyrics in the song. The guys were saying naughty words. And they were saying things that were only naughty but sexual in 1963. Forget about it. They tried to ban the record, okay? This guy and that guy comes in. Hey, ban that record. What did it do? <laughs> you tell teenagers they can't listen to something because it's, it's naughty. They're going to they're gonna search it out, which is what happened. And then the song goes to number two in the country. It's kept off the number one spot by Bobby Vinton and the singing nun. How about this? There's a juxtaposition for you. So, Louie Louie, bashing it out. Bam, 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 bam. Fun song now that I'm old and I can be forgiving. Not so much then. I listen to it now and I go, well, there it is. It still sounds the same, amateurish, but I guess there's fun in it. It just sounds like guys are having fun. And don't ever discount the fact that it could be naughty to its success. And so I look back and I think, well, there it is. The Kingsmen, they, they do this thing accidentally, not on purpose. They would like to have done it over again. If they did it over again, it would have never been a hit. I believe it. Whatever they captured there, that was the zeitgeist. And so what next? They became, I think, the first garage band. And they were followed by many, many other garage bands. And once, like I've said before, I was never into this stuff. And if I look at, look at it in retrospect, when I listen to Question Mark and the Mysterians or the Shondells and their Dirty Water, was it Dirty Water? I think so. All that stuff, based around three chords, still to me is, is not my taste. I can appreciate it for what it is. So um, that's my take on this stuff. And this, this sound, this feeling, this style that was happened on by accident in Portland, Oregon in 1963, really was uh, the foundation for the garage band movement and ultimately the punk band music movement that would take over in not only the United States, but more, more in Great Britain. It really never caught on here the same way. But um, anyway, I'm, this is my foundation. There'll be other things. The next, the next thing I'm going to talk about will be about the punk bands themselves and the songs and what it meant in a lasting way, what what did the music actually uh, mean? And uh, beyond, you know, the promotion of it. Okay, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this. This is Dennis DeYoung saying cheers. Hope the universe is spinning in your direction. Enlightening, perhaps. Entertaining. 
always. Thanks for listening to the podcast, Come Sail Away with Dennis DeYoung. Get the next new episode Friday morning at 7 a.m. on this website.